miles or the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Happy holidays, everyone. My name is Mike Young, and welcome to our fourth weekend of Advent here on a Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. Our family moved to Tullahoma, Tennessee from Pineville, Louisiana about 17-ish years ago. It was somewhat of a traumatic move in uh, many respects. We had moved away from family and longtime friends, but in many ways, it had been a wonderful place to raise our children. We all found our spots here. Our children had wonderful experiences in school, and we've met more lifelong friends. Our second Christmas here, we began making lists and checking them twice. It was the annual time to make decisions about what gifts we were going to buy and which ones would be from Santa and which ones would be from mom and dad. Our oldest, Hillary, was in seventh grade and loved being in on the secret about Santa Claus. Our two boys still believed, as they say, although our second grader, Austin, was more enthusiastic about it. Ethan, a preschooler, seemed indifferent at best but he played joyfully along. After overhearing some conversations with some of Austin's friends in carpool and sleepovers, my wife and I made a difficult decision that it might be time to let Austin in on the secret. I mean, we wanted to protect him from the jeers of friends at school who might tease because he still believed in Santa at the ripe old age of seven. And besides, we rationalized We wanted to be the ones to tell him rather than someone at school breaking the news. I mean, he could be a part of the fun getting his little brother brother ready for the season. Now, Austin remains our most sensitive child. He was then and he still is now. He has a deep empathy for others, fierce love for his family and friends, and has been known to cry at very appropriate times in movies and stories and family events. As a child, he would lean into his mom at a particularly moving point of a story or a movie, and he would whisper, That makes my nose red, Mommy. It would be accompanied by a couple of big, silent tears moving down his cheeks. These were and remain very masculine tears, tears that represent inner compassion, a soft heart, and yet also a deep and strong soul. We told him the best way we knew, the secret about Santa Claus. He got quiet. He walked out of the room. A few minutes later, he returned, and with all the strength he could muster, but with his little voice breaking and one huge tear gently rolling down his cheek, he said, Is it all right if I still believe in Santa Claus? 
it was a low watermark in our parenting. (laughs) Not our most perceptive or artful parenting decision. Big tears flowed from mom and dad's eyes. And hugs were shared. And of course, we tried to assure him that he could, of course, continue to believe in Santa. This story comes to mind each and every Christmas at our house. Austin, who also has the spiritual gift of deep sarcasm, reminds us and lets us know of the therapy he'll be needing because of the disillusionment we caused. It's a story that brings a lump in my throat to this day actually to this actual moment. As Larry Taylor reminds us in this Advent meditation, this is where poetry begins. This is where the wonder of the season begins. With a lump in the throat. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. It all begins with a lump in the throat. That's what Robert Frost said when asked how poems originate. They begin, he said, with a lump in the throat. And that's exactly what this season does to us. It's a month-long lump put there by childhood memories, by the music and poetry of the season, by visits with children and grandchildren, 
and by the scriptures we read together in December. Especially the scriptural hymns and poems in honor of God's Son. There's Isaiah's lovely poem read earlier by Linda. And then there are Luke's three hymns in his nativity story. And of course, there is John's breathtaking poem on the Word of God in the prologue to his gospel, which I have just read. They are all the most exalted poems in honor of Jesus Christ, and they invoke wonder in the heart and a lump in the throat. Wonder is the quality of amazement and surprise. It comes very naturally to little children, and maybe that's why they're the very best guides through this season. It's such a wonder-filled season, full of good things for the spirit. And it's certainly my favorite time of year, a time when I revisit my own childhood. I could wish for every little boy and girl the kind of childhood Christmas memories that I have. There were shopping trips downtown in the gleaming city with its huge department stores, windows full of animated characters, and there was the long annual climb up the marble stairs of the state capitol in Little Rock to visit the creche and the Christ child in the manger beneath the vast lighted dome. The choir at my church downtown sang Messiah, and we all learned with instructions from our parents about standing at the end for hallelujah. And best of all, some years, there was a trip to Jenkins Hill where my grandparents lived, a place of complete magic year-round, but especially in December. My own parents were devoted Christians, and there never was any doubt at our house about Christmas being the birthday of Jesus. Our Christmas celebration always focused on the church and the scriptures. But my parents also permitted me the wonder and the imagination of the season. There was no question that reindeer could fly. And Santa Claus always made it to our house, even though we had no chimney. Reality could be suspended so that imagination could have a chance. I know that some parents today try to minimize such secular things as reindeer and Santa Claus so their children will grow up knowing the real reason for the season, and I think that's a good intention. But I suspect that it is not fantasy or fairy tales that are harming our children so much as literalism and lack of imagination and too much empty prose, and far too little poetry. The wonder, the magic of Christmas, even in its secular expressions, is not without its place, and thankfully, not without its humor. Some years ago, 
I came across Bill Adler's book, Letters to Santa Claus. It's just a delightful book. I return to it most Decembers. One child had written to Santa, Dear Santa, last year you didn't bring me anything good. Year before last year, you didn't bring me anything good. This year is your last chance. My favorite letter in Bill Adler's book said, Dear Santa, at my house there are three little boys. There is Jeffrey, he is two. There is William, he is four. There is Sam, he is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. William is good some of the time. Sam is good all of the time. I am Sam. It's a season for keeping our sense of humor. The children help us do that. For people of faith, two of the great New Testament storytellers instruct us on how to explore this Advent season. I refer, of course, to Luke and to John. Together, they tell us, I think, that wonder will finally lead us to Christmas. Try to approach it too directly. Try to approach Christmas too analytically, too literally, and we'll miss it. But if we can come in the side door of wonder, we may just find the Christ. Music carries us to the very soul of the season. If you were not carried to the soul of the season this morning, and last Sunday night, I'm not sure anything can move you to the soul of this season. Song opens onto the mystery of Christmas. Luke's story of the birth of Jesus, for instance, is told with the help of three couples and their various songs. One couple are elderly. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. A second couple are younger. Their names, of course, are Mary and Joseph. And the third couple are not really husband and wife at all, but they wait to gather in the temple in Jerusalem for they know not what. And their names are Simeon and Anna, and they are also elderly. As Luke weaves his story of the birth of Jesus, with the stories of these three couples, each of them is marked by a beautiful hymn. When the angel visits Zechariah to tell him that in his old age he's going to become a father and that his wife, also elderly, will bear him a son, we're reminded, of course, of ancient Abraham and Sarah. The promise of the Old Testament is once again made good with God with God, nothing shall be impossible. The news is too much for Zechariah, of course, who wants more details, more precise information, please. How shall I know this, he asks. And because the Advent is not about knowing at all, but about believing the promise, Zechariah's mouth is shut. 
He can't speak until his son John is born. A reminder that silence can be pretty good preparation for something that's beyond words anyway. And when his son John is born, Zechariah breaks into song known as the Benedictus. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Meanwhile, the angel Gabriel visits Mary and informs her of the miracle within her. Mary considers what she's been told. She's just a young maiden. It's almost too much for her to comprehend. And the angel waits patiently for Mary's response. Fred Beekner says of this moment, the angel, the whole creation, even God himself, all hold their breath as they wait upon the answer of a girl. Mary takes her exciting news with her to visit her kinswoman, Elizabeth. It's a meeting of two pregnant women, and it's girl talk. No men are present except Zechariah. And he has to sit over in the corner and keep quiet because his mouth has been shut. There's a little Hebrew humor in that, I suspect. At the very appearance of Mary, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and Mary herself breaks into still another song known as the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. Once again, music carries us into the advent. The third song in Luke's story of Christmas takes place in the temple after Jesus' birth. His parents bring him there for the rite of purification to present him to God. In the temple, there was an old man who had waited long years for some manifestation of the Lord. His name was Simeon. And when he saw the infant Jesus, he too broke into song known as the Nunc Dementis. Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. All three of Luke's songs have Latin titles taken from their opening words. It's good for us. We need to hear a little Latin during Advent just to remind us that God is always beyond our easy understanding and that the Word does not become words anyway. It becomes flesh. Anna, an old prophetess, was also in the temple and she promised great things for this young child. This old pair, Simeon and Anna, waited for the Lord. Advent is about waiting for the Lord. We don't much like to be kept waiting. It can be tiring just to sit and wait. But we never tire of the Christmas story. And I am especially fond, personally, of the way John's gospel tells it. 
Luke may go to Nazareth and Bethlehem to tell us his Christmas story, but John begins his story in eternity. And he begins it with breathtaking poetry. The first paragraph of John's prologue is a hymn, a poem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Its cadences sing with wonder, and its words put a lump in the throat. The prologue to John's gospel is his Christmas story, and it's a poetic meditation on the Word of God. The first paragraph is poetry, the third paragraph is poetry, but the second paragraph is about John the Baptist and its prose. And so in this beautiful Christmas hymn, history mingles with eternity and earth with heaven and prose with poetry. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there is something in poetry that our spirits need. Kathleen Norris writes that as adults we want answers, but sometimes we'll settle for poetry. And there's something about poetry that makes it a suitable vehicle for telling the story of Christmas. Remember Professor Keating in the movie Dead Poets Society? He said, a poem can be made from anything that has the stuff of revelation in it. Poet William Carlos Williams said, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. And philosopher Martin Heidegger said, poetically, we dwell upon the earth. Now, poetry is very much like time. We all know what it is until we try to define it. T.S. Eliot described poetry as an ever-fresh assault on the inarticulate. Come to think of it, that's not a bad definition of prayer. But I like Fred Beatner's definition of poetry best. He said, poetry is immensity compacted. Listen to the sound of immensity compacted. I drank at every vine, the last was like the first. I came upon no vine as wonderful as thirst. Edna St. Vincent Millay. Or listen again. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And now listen to the sound of immensity compacted in John's poetic story of Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. 
understand John's story of Christmas, we have to read poetry, listen to music, and embrace wonder. Because the Bible was written by people of poetic spirit, and John is chief among them. To understand this season, we have to think like poets rather than engineers and computer technicians. Because, says David Buttrick, poetry is imprecise enough to leave room for the sweet improvisations of God, to leave room for wonder. Together, Luke and John point us the way through this marvelous season of Advent, and the way is music and hymn and poetry and wonder. Let wonder take you by the hand these next few days and lead you. Sit down and have a visit with a four-year-old. Let your mind idle during a few moments stolen from the television, the noise pollution of our times, and listen to the rhythm of your own heart and breathing. Find a way during this season to separate yourself from the haggling and the rancor of not-so-solemn assemblies and revisit the childhood places of the still small voice and the lump in the throat. Speaking of not-so-solemn assemblies, a few years ago after the Louisiana Baptist Convention, I was ready to remember some quieter times. I went to Little Rock to spend a few days with my mother. And the next morning, she and I drove north to the beautiful little town of Batesville on the White River. We went to reminisce about old times. Memories have places, and we wanted to remember. My mother had grown up in this little town, and I had spent happy summer vacations there with my grandparents, whom I adored. They'd lived in the big house on Jenkins Hill, where I probably have more childhood memories than any other place. The house had sold out of our family 35 years before. I hadn't been inside that house in a long time. I have an oil painting of the house in my own den, and occasionally I can sit and look at that painting and be transported back to days of wonder as a boy roaming freely through those spacious rooms. My grandmother never said, don't quit or stop. On this brilliant November day, we had come back to visit old places, cemeteries where loved ones lie, sylvan places I used to ambush birds with my rifle before I knew better the old grist mill on the highway with its mirror pool of trout and, of course, Jenkins Hill. There it was. I stopped the car out in the street at the foot of the driveway, and I looked longingly up to that house, changed only slightly through the years, still unmistakable. I noticed on the front porch a woman surrounded by children's brightly colored toys, a playpen or a cradle for an infant. And on a moment's impulse, I turned the car and I drove up that driveway where I've driven a thousand thousand times and I stopped the car and got out 
and introduced myself. The woman greeted my mother and me warmly, and after I had explained to her my interest in the house, she said, wouldn't you like to come in? There was warmth. There was graciousness in her voice. I hesitated, of course. I didn't want to intrude, but my mother said, yes, he wants to. <laughs> you know how mothers are. And so I crossed the threshold of childhood's fabled house, a place of unspeakable joy and wonder, and I entered the room where I hadn't been in more than 35 years with a lump in my throat. Mrs. Stevens was our hostess name. She explained that the toys on the front porch were for her grandchildren when they came to visit. I had come to visit grandparents in this very house years ago. She showed us through the long familiar rooms. Every one of them was a flood tide of memories. Here in this den, we had eaten those molasses popcorn balls on cold winter nights. In this very kitchen, the best custard pies and blackberry cobblers in all creation had once been made. The bedrooms, the bedrooms were all smaller than I remembered. But the house still retained that close, intimate, womb-like security I knew as a child. Why, I even thought I heard the faint echo of laughter in the walls. I had never imagined that I would see these rooms again. And now here I stood for these few moments. Time and space were somehow rejoined. Immensity was compacted and imagination took over again. In the living room, we had celebrated Christmas. Was this silent night, holy night, I was hearing on the old record player? Over in the corner again stood the native cedar tree that we had cut the day before from the hillside, decorated with brilliant lights. And here by the wall, the long-piled blue sofa, the old piano next to the double doors, everything was just the way I remembered it. I had come home again to a place I loved. It's a time toward home for all of us. Only four more days now. And Advent opens onto Christmas. Will you be going home for Christmas? We'll arrive there full of memories and wonder with a lump in our throats. The Word has become flesh, and a young mother cradles her newborn and greets us warmly at the door and says, wouldn't you like to come in? Let's pray.
We thank you, Lord, for a season every year that prepares our hearts and minds and spirits once again for wonder, mystery, and miracle. For everything we've experienced in the weeks past, we give you thanks. For all the journeys along the road, the conversations had, the needs expressed, the uncertainties mentioned. But now here we are, days away, miles away. And we ask you to go with us the rest of the way so that we may experience once again what our hearts need, our homes need, our church needs, what the whole world needs. Speak to us once again because we need to hear, we need to hear about your love. Amen. It is indeed what I need this season. It's what we all need. As Larry said, Frederick Buechner has defined poetry as immensity compacted. I would contend that the words and tears of a young child are precisely that. And Austin's words moved me profoundly again this morning as I was reminded of that moment listening to these words shared by Larry Taylor. It's what the Christian scriptures mean when we read the words of Jesus as translated by Eugene Peterson. Unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, immensity compacted. Eugene Peterson translates this as, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Let wonder take you by the hand and lead you into this season. I hope you might try out some of Larry's suggestions. Sit down and have a conversation with a four-year-old. Turn off the devices and listen to the rhythm of your own heart and breathing. Find a way to separate yourself from the rancor of not-so-solemn assemblies. Revisit the childhood places of the still, small voice and the lump in the throat. You can still do this, even during this season when travel is discouraged. I did just now. As I heard my son again asking me, is it all right if I still believe in Santa Claus? And as T.S. Eliot said in all of his compacted immensity, it was an ever fresh assault on the inarticulate. My nose was indeed red. And I saw home right there before me, not too distant. I hope you found this episode as meaningful as it's been for me. If you have any suggestions, comments, or would just like to tell us how we're doing, please send these notes to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. 
It's been so encouraging to hear from some of you, and I know it's encouraging to Larry. The podcast is available on Podbean, Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it on your social media platforms. As always, I'm so thankful for Larry and Linda for what they've meant to so many of us throughout the years. Next week, we'll be hearing a follow-up sermon to the Advent series we just finished. For the time being, here on a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Until then, I'm Mike Young. I hope you have opportunity to experience the wonder of this season. And from my family to yours, grace and peace. Peace.